Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's my pleasure today to be with the incomparable Nick Welsh, star editor and columnist for The Independent. How are you today, Nick? Doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I appreciate you taking the time to talk because we have a little bit of a news peg for this podcast, which is for the first time ever, you've been named the best of best columnist in Santa Barbara. Congratulations. Well, you know, it's been a long time. I had to bribe a lot of people to make that happen. (laughs) Well, you know, Starshine is legendary and she's a fantastic writer, but I always sort of like wondered why occasionally you didn't win over the years because your poodle is amazing. It's so unique. It's, it has your voice, your tone. It can't be duplicated. Nobody else can can write like that. So um, I thought it was great that you got that public recognition. Well, thank you. It, it was it was nice to get. I mean, it is funny. Um, every year, you know, the, the paper kind of goes through, like, what are we going to do in the best of and what categories are we going to do? And over years, I, you know, I've never won this before. And before Starshine, it was Barney Branningham, uh, and who was a columnist first for the news press, and then he came over um, to our paper. And I just couldn't win. And I was like, come on, man, this is my own hometown paper. I can't win. <laughs> so I was, I, I would go to the, the powers that be within the paper and say, okay, we need to create a new category. So we need to have best trans species transgender columnist and I figured that you know being the angry poodle uh, Trixie um, I, I, I probably fit that bill and there was no other writer in town who would fit that gerrymandered category um, so it was nice I didn't have to go to that extreme uh, to get a little love yeah well, let's talk about the poodle because you've been riding this poodle forever. There was a time when we didn't even know you wrote it. It just said Trixie at the end. You know, people who were not part of the independent had no idea. But let we talk about it because it is a column that is super unique. It's it's not some it's not like a Herb Kane type column where it's sort of uh, legendary in terms of. Um, it's 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 ability to like name people and be connected to people it's like when you write a sentence like the way you turn a phrase is so unique to you can you talk about the process of writing the poodle and how you do that and has it evolved over the years yeah it, it definitely evolved i mean just um first um the poodle actually originated in a paper called it was a weekly paper that we were competing with at the time called nightlife um uh, and which then became the weekly, uh, and uh, it was uh, three people wrote it. I think Marty Pullman did it the most, and um, and then the two papers we were competing weeklies at the time, and then they they merged. And um, I remember talking to Marianne Partridge, my editor, and she told me we were merging, which was not happy news uh, to anybody at the time. Uh, and I said, okay, on one condition you got to kill the goddamn poodle. It was the most irritating, obnoxious calm. And, uh, you know, she, you know, I think she had champagne-colored fur, and she was always referencing to, you know, her diamond-studded tiara collar, and <laughs> I lift my leg, and all this kind of stuff. And it was just like, um, the people who wrote it uh, like to think they were, what, what the word they used was irreverent. And people who go around patting themselves on the back because they're irreverent 
really are interesting or funny, and they just are obnoxious. And um, and we had a guy named Rich Alcott who was with that, and, and he was a surrealist reporter who also wrote the the poodle. And he worked for us for a little bit after the um, the merger. And the problem with the poodle that he wrote um, was that you couldn't tell if he was just making it up or something actually happened, or if he thought it would be interesting <laughs> if it had happened. And it was interesting, and he was a really funny guy, but you just couldn't tell. And he didn't last too long, and I think he went to you know, Japan to teach people how to speak English and make a ton of money. Um, and I wound up getting it by default. And at that point, it was really... I had it, but it was a group endeavor, and so it was a little bit more Herb Caney, so it would be little bits. So you'd have a little nugget about this item or a little nugget about that, and it wasn't signed, and it wasn't signed for a reason because there were so many different people working on it. And over time, I kind of took it over more and more, and, uh, you know, um, at, at, you know, at Tuesday night, I would go around to all the other reporters and say, you have anything interesting? What do you got that I can cannibalize for the dog? And they would give up whatever it was. And then, you know, it would be a sort of situation where somebody had given me something that they had reported on, and then it would come out in my words in a way that may, would make their life uncomfortable with the person who gave them the information. Yeah. So they stopped talking to me. So they would say, yeah, Nick, that's really nice. Uh, and so I, I wound up getting it, and um, some somewhere along the way I started signing it. Um, and there's a, a long, boring story about that, but somewhere along the way um, I saw a column, I can't remember who it was, but the idea was you start at a certain point and you have an ending and, and there's a weave to it, right? And... Um, I thought, oh, that's really literary. Wow, I could be a real writerly writer. Mm. I'm going to try that. So instead of doing these little nuggets of, of sort of disconnected parts um, that really are kind of interesting and don't have to be belabored, um, I started trying to do this weave. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Typically, you know, I, I start off pretending to talk about one thing and then shifting the subject back to what I really want to talk about because um, it's just a a form of bait and switch, essentially. That is, uh, at the core of my writing style is bait and switch. Uh, (laughs) uh, Because as a reader, I don't want to hear a bunch of predictable shit, right? Right. And and there's so many columnists here, okay, Trump sucks. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, great. So if I don't want to read it, Nobody wants to hear that from me. Uh, but of course, really what I have to say is pretty obvious and not really that unpredictable. So I have to do this sort of razzmatazz that sort of gets their interest up front and then I kind of shift into the sort of predictable, boring thing that I wouldn't read if it was the lead. And then I kind of come back to it or pretend to come back to it at the end. Um, and it's a total gimmick. Uh, <laughs> But it's, it's a nice formula, and it works. I mean, it's really kind of an inter- I don't know if it's interesting or not, but I mean, I come in Wednesday morning at 6 a.m., and it has to be written by a little bit after 8. Oh, okay. Um, and so it's, I mean, I, I, I've got the pieces out of what it's going to be about from, you know, 
the night before. So it's like coming in, knowing what you got in the refrigerator. You come in, you pull the scallions and the eggs and the onions out, and, and you make an omelet. Um, but uh, you only have X amount of time to make it. So you have that sort of explosive creativity, those two hours. Do you do you find that you enjoy that? Is that a rush as a writer? You know, um, I don't know if it's that explosive. Sometimes it's really, you know, sometimes it's just laying bricks. Mm-hmm. Um, but you want to have a good downhill start. You want to have a, a beginning that at least has some humor or has something to it or grab somebody by their shirt collar and says, please read this. Um, <laughs> and... Um, do you laugh out loud while you're writing it? I think the hallmark of the poodle for me is it makes me laugh out loud. And that is really difficult to do as a writer, to make somebody actually, it's hard to make somebody feel something, but to actually enunciate something, that's a incredibly difficult skill. Um, can you talk to me about the humor that you insert and how does that happen? And do you actually find yourself giggling at your keyboard? You know, every once in a blue moon, uh, I will have, um, you know, something something will occur to you at the last minute. It's something that you didn't plan on. Uh, like you'll, some uh, connection that you should have seen but you didn't. and Or, or some weird departure uh, will occur to you. And, and you'll go, wow, that is so much fun. Yeah. Just to, to be able to sit there and just sort of control mayhem like, I know I gotta have turn something in two hours and have something sort of explode and or or just occur to me and and then you can run with it and so yeah I mean <clears throat> I'll give you an example actually a columnist at, at Newshawk um, what's the name of the guy who writes all about the um, uh, COVID and why it wasn't a big problem oh Brian Gobel Brian Gobel well Brian Gobel was part of a, uh, of a group called um Restore Integrity in Government. And Restore Integrity in Government was a group that was trying to um, pretty much hijack uh, the process by which redistricting was going to take place in Santa Barbara County to give disproportionate weight to the Republicans. Um, and, and so I knew I was going to talk about that. But it didn't occur to me until I came in in the morning that Restore Integrity in Government was an acronym, and the acronym was RIG. <laughs> and so uh, it was like I said, like, wow, I can't believe I'm so stupid. I didn't <laughs> see that. But once, I mean, that was just such a softball. Once I saw that, you know, you know Restore Integrity in Government, and it spells RIG, okay. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of went to town with it, and um, I remember when it got to the Board of Supervisors for discussion, um, certainly Peter Adam, who had a lot to do with, or actually his uh, assistant, Peter Adam, being county supervisor from uh, the 4th District, uh, and his assistant had a lot to do with this whole gambit. And um, so he was very unhappy with it. And unfortunately for me, uh, Peter didn't enjoy the humor, uh, whatever humor there was. Uh, and... Um, I ran into him up at the Casmelia uh, Toxic Waste Site uh, where Mike Stoker was showing up and the head of the EPA at that time, who has since been forced to resign in disgrace, um, was there. And 
uh, I approached Peter Adam and he said, I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to you anymore. Oh, no. So <laughs> he stopped. And you know, you know what? It's like, oh, you don't want that ha to happen. First of all, I actually enjoy Peter Adam. And I think that he brings a perspective to the Board of Supervisors, which even if I make fun of or disagree with, I really appreciate the questions he raises. And he, and he brings things out that wouldn't otherwise be brought out. And I have enjoyed talking with him. He's a smart guy. I may not agree with him on a lot, but he's a smart guy. And so it really was frustrating, and I would keep trying, and I wasn't going to get anywhere. And, and his assistants, they couldn't talk to me. And Anyway, that's the way it goes sometimes. It's funny. I mean, you'd think they would think, let's come up with something other yeah. than, than rig. Um, and, but it was such a gift, and I was so stupid. I mean, here it is. I mean, I was going, okay, I'm going to get into this thing, because... You know, it was clearly, you know, but it's like such an into-the-weeds, wonky thing. Whenever you get into district lines being drawn, it's wonky. <laughs> so how do you make this, like, accessible to somebody who isn't into wonk politics? And, I, you know, I was really struggling, and so it was just great to come in first thing in the morning and have, thank you, Jesus, now yeah. I have it. Yeah. Do you have a favorite column, a favorite poodle? Is there uh, a type of... You know, do you like to cover the city of Santa Barbara more with the poodles or the county or anything like that? Oh, you know, the poodle is such a, a, a catch-all for so many different things. So for a long time, I, um, the, answer, the short answer to the question is no. Um, so the poodle would be, okay, we have a really boring story, a really important story that's really boring, um, like redistricting. Um, how do you make that readable? Yeah. How do you so so because the poodle is written in a in a much freer voice, so it's a combination of snot and snark and humor and big words and uh, attitude and information. I mean, it always has to have nutrient content. It's just not my opinion. If it was just my opinion, it would be like a complete waste of time. Mm -hmm. But it has to have actual information you can agree with or disagree with but it has to have information. But a lot of information is really boring. So I used to write about like Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. I mean, good God Almighty. Once you get into the movable parts there, you fall asleep. Um, so the poodle would be a good venue where you could talk about that without falling asleep. You know, when there was that um, famous ill-timed photo of the Carpinteria School Board, standing out in the cannabis fields of uh, Graham Farrar's cannabis greenhouse, wearing his cannabis hats and wearing their, his cannabis lab coats. And it was just such a stupid thing for them to allow themselves to do. I think where I came down on, on that was, yes, you should take the money and run, but you don't make yourself look so stupid, which is probably not <laughs> a, a morally defensible position. Yeah. Um, but again, it was an opportunity to sort of acknowledge the reality um, and say, hey, I, I, I mean, where I can speak in a much more direct WTF voice to the elected officials, whereas as a reporter, you don't. Um, you know, one that I should have done but didn't get around to because there was something else going on. Uh, was when the county board of supervisors just gave themselves a three percent pay increase. Oh yeah. I mean that was just inexcusable. Yeah. I mean yeah they probably deserve it. Yeah they work hard. Yeah it's a really hard job they have and it couldn't be harder than, than now. 
But for those people that take a 3% pay increase when they're going to buy, they're going to stick it to their workers uh, and say, sorry, guys, you're, you're going to be on indefinite furlough, you're going to be laid off, and you're going to have to take pay cuts. It was just monkey see, monkey do, and they should, they did it the wrong way. Um, and I was really disappointed um, with all of them uh, that they, I mean, when the city council did it, they gave themselves a 10% pay increase. They at least had an excuse. Their excuse was the city charter gave them no opportunity to refuse it. Um, this isn't written into the county charter. This is, it was, and really 3%, it, it's not worth it. Yeah, the perception of that is not worth it whatever they're going to take home. That's extra, for sure. Um, but yeah, that poodle is, is just really, really well written and really well done. And uh, I've made the poodle a few times. You've insulted me. And you've complimented me a few times over the years. But I think the poodle has a way of, like, insulting people. But I know when they read it, they, they love it. They still love it. Like, that's the art. Like, one time you, you, you uh, referred to me as like Doss Williams is, uh, or, or you said that I wrote like a hagiographic uh, uh, story about uh, uh, Doss Williams, you know, and it's sort of like, wow, that's hilarious. <laughs> because, you know, it's like, you know, this is just like, he's just calling me on, you know, sort of this perception of like favorable writing. This is like five, six years I remember, or something yeah. like that. And so, but it's like, it's also laced in truth too. You know, it's like, well, no, I don't think that, but actually I could see his perspective. So that's funny. And so that works. And I think that you have that gift for sure. Do you get people who call you after reading the poodle mad at you? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I try to do, um, just because it is a small town and I'm a coward, uh, <laughs> is uh, I try to find something about the people I'm gonna smack around, uh, something sincere that is that I like about them. Yeah. Uh, so part of it is it's strategic, but part of it is my nature. Uh, I like to give the devil the devil's due. Um, the devil isn't effective because uh, he's just evil. Uh, the devil is effective because he's charming and smart and funny. Yeah. Um, and if you and when you just get mad at people, it just becomes noise and it just becomes smoke and we have so much noise and smoke in our life as it is nobody needs more of it so what i'm constantly fighting with is how do i get past the din of bitterness that we're all so consumed by and how do you say something that expresses your own outrage without just being part of the outrage choir and so for example this week I tried it and I failed. I, I totally flopped. I did a, a pool about the $8 billion settlement by Purdue Pharmaceutical Company. $8 billion. And, you know, that's all about, you know, how they were selling oxycodone and opiates and how many people have died. And, you know, it is one of the most egregiously cynical uh, and really should be criminal acts. I mean, 400,000 people have died of overdoses in the past 20 years. Now, not all of them can be attributed to farming you know, Purdue, but they were really the pioneers of how do we turn a nation into junkies. And the cynicism and the greed is just breathtaking. And, you know, I don't know how you'd be light and whimsical about that. Um, 
And I went back and I started reading what I wrote, and I couldn't finish the first paragraph. Like, oh, shut up, man. It's just <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just another... People, people appreciate outrage, but they're so exhausted by it. It's just so much outrageousness in the world, and then everybody is getting so hyperventilated and expressing their disgust. It, it's just... It's almost as bad as the thing itself. And um, I, was, I, I was hoping to avoid that, um, but it, I, that one didn't work. And it happens a lot where I go back and I read a pool and I just start and I go, just shut up. <laughs> yeah, uh, meanness or criticism without a solution or some payoff for the reader gets really old yeah. for a while. You know, and I think most of the time, you know, that's not a problem with you, but... Um, yeah, I, it's it's a great column. We'll move on, but I think um, it's one of the things that people really look forward to reading every week. And it's, it's I mean, every uh, paper yeah. needs, you know, it's gravy. Uh, you know, every paper needs its gravy boat. And uh, you know, you sit down and have turkey. You have to have the gravy. And um, you know, gravy has nutrient content. It's got salt. It's got. It's how people talk to each other. It's how people. It's a more direct voice. And, and there's an artificial voice that newspaper writers adopt for utilitarian reasons uh, when writing a news column yeah. uh, that he said, she said. And um, there's a reason for it and there's a value to it, but what people hunger for is a, is a voice. Um, and so a, a column feels that, that you're, you're not talking to the omniscient third person, you're talking to Starshine, or you're talking to Barney Brainingham, or you're talking to me. Yeah. And the people radiate to that, or gravitate to it, I think is a better word. Yeah, definitely, that's a great way to put it. Can we talk about your background a little bit? Sure. Um, I mean, I've known you for 20 years, but we're always talking about stories, uh, and not much about what happened you know, before uh, we you know, started working here in Santa Barbara. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your your upbringing and where you grew up? And did you want to be a writer since you were five years old, or did you have other aspirations? Um, I've done a lot of other things, mm -hmm. um, but I grew up in the suburbs of Washington D.C. Um, uh, my father uh, was a lawyer who worked for the Association of American Railroads, who so was like a, a lobby firm. He was a, a Midwestern. He grew up in Anderson, Indiana, and um, you know, served in the uh, military intelligence during World War II, and moved to D.C. under the uh, Harry Truman administration to work in the antitrust di division. Um, and it was a really, you know, at that time there was a lot of energy and um, you know, a sense of purpose and mission. You know, they were going to beat, they were going to beat up the, the big monopolies and you know, keep America honest and all that shit. And um, my mother kept having babies, um, and, um, and uh, Dwight Eisenhower was elected, he was a Republican, and my parents were, you know, hard, you know, Democrats, and uh, they were worried that they were going to get purged. This was sort of the, the McCarthy era, and so it was not an unreasonable fear. And so my father took this job that paid him well, but wasn't really um, good for his soul. And um, so I grew up in a big Catholic family with lots of screaming and shouting. One of the great things that my mother did, um, she was this total hurricane, whirlwind personality, um, is that she 
said, we're not going to have any TVs in this house. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, if you wanted to escape, uh, which of course everybody needs to, um, you read. And so uh, I liked reading. And, um, you know, so I grew up, you know, going to Catholic school in the, in the 60s and the 70s. And, um, the, you know, the, the form of rebellion that appealed to me back then, there was all these underground newspapers. Mm. And, you know, uh, my brother, one of my older brothers was vaguely familiar in, in some fashion with uh, some underground newspaper in Washington, D.C., where you, know, you have the connected dots. You know, you, you, one, two, three, and, and then you draw a picture. Yeah. Well, there was a judge in town, I'm blanking on his name, but he was sort of like the Hoffman judge in the, the Chicago 7 trial. Um, and he was much hated for reasons that I can't remember. And, um, and it showed, uh, when you connected the dots, it was a picture of him sitting on a toilet masturbating. And it, way too much information. And of course, when you're like a sixth or seventh grade kid, Wow, that's just like way too much fun. Um, that's for me. Uh -huh. um, and okay, this is how I got into writing. Now I'm gonna shut up. Um, so I go to Catholic school, and of course in Catholic school you're always getting in trouble because that's your job. <laughs> and um, so I had a, you know, a teacher um, who, you know, what he would do is he'd make me write an essay. So it was like write a 500 word essay, and. Um, and so I always would write these essays. At the end of them, they would be funny. I would make fun of them. And I would, I would turn it around, and at the very end, I'd have some punchline that makes him look stupid. Um, <laughs> and at that time, I carpooled. And so this is, this is why I became a writer. Um, it was, there was a sexy mom who was a carpool mom, Mrs. Powell. And, um, and I left behind... Uh, one of the assignments, the thought, one of my uh, essays, uh, my punishment essays, in the car, and she read it. Oh. And one day she says, listen, to, listen, you ever get in trouble again, I don't know what you did, but if you ever get in trouble again, let me read it. That was fucking hilarious. Of course, <laughs> she didn't say fucking. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, all, I didn't even know what a sexy mom was back then, but I knew she was, and she was smart and funny. And she and she laughed at my jokes, which yeah. of course that is the definition of sexy. <laughs> and um, so I thought, oh, maybe I got something. Uh -huh. um, Mrs. Powell. Mrs. Powell. Life. I wish I could. Uh, How old was Mrs. Powell at this time? Oh my God, she was probably in her thirties. Right. She's you a know. cougar. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was lucky, and, and, you know, I, that um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. Um, and I think that is like such a blessing because so many people are like, what do I want to do? You know, it's like, there's just so much to choose from and what's right, what's the right fit. And I always had just a sense, no, I want to do this. Um, and then I realized um, I wasn't really very entrepreneurial. I didn't have much self-discipline. Um, so I needed to put myself in a position where I had to pr produce. If I put myself in a position where I had to produce, um, I, I definitely knew I could. Um, and so newspapers sort of were sort of a, a kind of a combination of giving you the structure in which you have to produce, at the same time giving you a vehicle 
by which any sublimated social activism uh, energy can be uh, expressed. And I definitely, you know, when I started off in journalism, I was all about, like, you know, the world's going to end because the crisis of capitalism is going to, you know, the contradiction of capitalism are going to crush the world wide open and it's going to, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I didn't make it as a uh, uh, communist because I was denounced as a bourgeois dilettante nihilist by my <laughs> commie peers. Okay. And so, which I think was probably pretty accurate. And so then I just sort of fell into more um, mainstream social activism reporting. So you went to Catholic school, and that is what, through 12th grade, or is that? I went through 8th grade. Through 8th grade. And then I went to a hippie, a, a hippie high school or an alternative high school for two years, and then I went to public school uh, for two years. Um, and then I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, where I studied history. Okay. And so you, you've been reading your entire life, because you had no TV right. in the house. So. Can you talk about the nexus between being a good writer and being a reader? Because this is something that I try to stress is that you can't have a lot of muscles if you don't work out. You can't build your endurance if you don't run. It sounds like it's uh, easy to be a good writer, but it starts with reading, right? I mean, can you talk about what nexus you have between the love of reading and how that translates to turning a phrase? Ah, that's a, I, I mean, it, like right now I'm reading a guy named A.J. Liebling, uh, and he's writing about uh, Huey Long's brother. Uh, Huey Long was a senator from the state of Louisiana, and his brother was the governor. And I can't remember his, governor, his first name, but he was the one who famously had an affair with a stripper, and his family had him put in a mental institution. And his great line as a campaigner was, I am not a nut. Um, but he, um, in A.J. Liebling, you read two pages of this guy, and you're just going, I am so not worthy. Mm. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, he's just so amazing, and he does it so effortless, and these thoughts that don't seem to connect at all just are some run right after the next, and you have this... Um, and it's, it's sort of discouraging, because you just think, poof, how could... I mean... If you thought about it, you, you just you couldn't possibly do it. So you have to tap some place where you're not thinking. Mm-hmm. And um, but reading, I, you know, I I just read kind of as a default position. I don't remember so much of what I read. It's like you read stuff that makes your head explode. You know, stuff that's really outrageous, and it defies memory. It's like it's so upsetting you can't even remember it. And I'm, I read books all the time, mostly trashy detective novels. Yeah. Um, and I can't tell you the name of the writer, I can't tell you the name of the book or the main character, but I get into it. Um, so a lot of my reading is ridiculously unconscious. Um, and whatever I learn from it is completely accidental. Yeah. Um, but you get a vibe. Right. And. Um, but I can imagine when you're on deadline, all of that reading that you've done somehow comes out. It's yeah. that word you read, that phrase, that style, and it sort of comes out without you even knowing that. Well, you know, it's like when you listen to music and you hear a chord, and it's like, oh, that's like that's like a different chord. Yeah. And it has a different... Mm, well, when you read, you, you, you 
there's certain words that tie together and you go, ooh, that gives me a weird feeling. Ah, how do they do that? And you don't really know how to do it, but um, you try to do something like it. And so when you write, you, you try to do something different to give that feeling. And this bad analogy, going back to the chords, the Everly Brothers, who you, a lot of people listen might know about, um, they found their style trying to emulate and imitate Bo Diddley. Well, they didn't know how to imitate Bo Diddley, so they accidentally stumbled onto their own style mm -hmm. and their own very distinctive sound. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of probably how it works. Mm -hmm. And your first job then as a newspaper reporter, what was that like? Well, okay. Um, so I was at University of Wisconsin. Um, I worked uh, for the, uh, the school newspaper there. Oh, okay. Um, uh, and uh, I wrote a column for that. I uh, wrote, I had an internship with the Progressive Magazine, which was famous back then for publishing uh, the recipe for how to make an atomic bomb. <laughs> uh, which, that was the one instance where the government um, uh, stopped them from printing. That was prior restraint. Oh, okay. Uh, so it was a big, hairy deal. Um, and uh, so they were trying to point, they, they weren't the anarchist cookbook for nuclear saboteurs. Their point was if you anybody could go into any library and find out how to make an atomic bomb, and they, I think a guy's name was Howard Moreland, did just that. He went in and he did it, and the government said, you are not writing that. And so that was really cool, and mostly what I did there, though, unfortunately, was I, I read unsolicited manuscripts and told people why, and passed on my two cents worth, whether they were interesting or not. And then um, there was a uh, newspaper strike in Madison, Wisconsin, and a strike paper formed, and I freelanced for that, uh, for the, the striking, I helped out with that a little bit. Uh, and um, there was a radio station, um, it was sort of like KPFK, um, but it was W-O-R-T, Wart Radio. <laughs> and, um, and it was great, and I got in, um, and I did a radio news hour, and I became a radio news reporter, and, a, and I then became a producer of a half hour news show, and again, being radical, you know, my whole thing is I just want to drop I just want to drop a million safes on everybody's head yeah. and just bum their trip by how terrible things were. I was like, oh my God. But what was really cool is you could call up anybody in the world or anybody in the country, record an interview with them, and then go into the recording studio and splice the tape. This was old fashioned with razor blades, right? And tape. And I just loved going into the, I mean, it was like going into a sauna bath. It was so hot and steamy. and. Yeah. You, and, and you would, I mean, you just call anybody up and, and they would talk to you. It was like ridiculous. Um, so that was very cool. You could have all these conversations. And so I did that. Um, and I was in Wisconsin, so freelancing. Um, and me and my girlfriend at the time, we were going to move to Seattle and we were going to, you know, start a business, a video production business. That's what we were going to do. And um, so she went out there first, um, and you know when she went out there, she discovered that she liked women better than she liked me. Uh oh. And uh, <laughs> and then I showed up, and so it was kind of awkward, but not really, because 
in terms of the male jealousy department, um, I had an easier time uh, being jilted for a woman than I would have being jilted for a man. You uh, can't compete, so why take it personally? Yeah, I mean, um, but we, we stayed friends for a while, and I stayed in Seattle for a while, and I freelanced my ass off. And um, I accumulated a massive uh, file of rejection letters. Oh. Um, thank you very much, um, but no way in hell. And then I saw an uh, advertisement uh, in Indies Times, which was a socialist newspaper at the time. Uh, you like uh, low work, uh, hard work and low pay for a worker-owned collective newspaper in Santa Barbara, California. And that was, at that time, the news and review. Yeah. And so, as a large, um, I wrote a, a letter Basically, like, before then, I'd been writing all these very earnest letters about what a great asset to the, your organization I could be. Mm -hmm. And with the, this one, I didn't give a shit. Mm -hmm. and, and so I just said, I'm the, I'm the hottest thing since sliced bread, since Swiss cheese, since anything. You would be so lucky to have me. I can't believe I'm writing you this letter. <laughs> um, you, you, I mean, the fact that I'm writing you this letter just shows you how magnanimous I am. Um, and... <clears throat> I got an interview, um, and I thought it was because I was so freaking clever. It turns out that my cleverness had nothing to do with anything. Um, it was really because a lot of the people at the paper at the time had been in Madison. They had come from Madison, so there was known as the Madison Mafia. Oh, okay. And I didn't know any of them, and they didn't know me, but they knew people who knew me, or they knew people who worked at the same places where I had worked. So that gave me definitely an inside advantage. And so it was between me and another guy. Uh, it was, I, was, I was more into you know, news. The other guy was into sort of culture and lifestyle. They needed somebody who was more newsy, and so they hired me. So how many years have you been in Santa Barbara then? I moved here April Fool's Day. Really? 1983. <laughs> 1983. Yeah. And the, the office at that time was in, on the top floor of the Balboa Building, uh -huh. which was sort of ironic, given that the Balboa Building was, um, well, it was actually really uh, ironic for two reasons. The Balboa Building was, um, at that time, probably the downtown heart and soul of the military-industrial complex in Santa Barbara. I mean, they had whole floors roped off for companies that did missile plume trajectory and you know, they were, they were hard science, how do you send missiles into space and blow people up uh, type uh, brain trust. And so there we were, they sort of the piece in granola paper. Um, so that's where we started. So you've almost been doing this for 40 years. I really Park. wish you hadn't reminded me of that. <laughs> so and we talked a little bit about this uh, you know, before we started recording. But do you have a, a favorite story or, or some period or era? I know it probably all blends together, but is there a story that you look back at that you're like, I did that. I, that's all me. Or just something you covered. Well, first of all, it's never all you. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you know, the loneliness of the long-distance writer is great romance. It's, great, it's actually great truth. It's great reality. But the fact of the matter is, um, you know, I have editors. Uh, I have other reporters I work with, and um, 
what makes a newspaper job so cool is the collaboration. And there are times, there are golden ages in my mind of like, wow, I got to work with, you know, I mean, obviously, we you all had... mentioned Jerry Cornfield? No, yeah, we didn't marry Jerry Cornfield. Um, there are those times in anybody's life where they are in the process of becoming who they became. And so and there's something intoxicating about that energy, and you never get it back. And it is always going to be the golden age. Um, for me, you know, to get to work with Chris Gardner as a photographer um, and Russ Spencer as a writer and, you know, uh, Marianne Partridge as an editor, um, Martha Sadler as a, I mean, Martha Sadler is like one of the scariest people on the planet, one of the funniest people on the planet, one of the best reporters and interviewers on the planet. Mm -hmm. And to sit in a room and listen to her work was just amazing. Um, and, you know, Dana Brown, who is a sports writer we had, who was just like a fearless writer in terms of emotionally revealing you know, uh, and, and being hilarious, and I hated him because he was so fucking great, and he made it look so easy, um, but it wasn't. Um, so that was probably, you know, a, a period, and, it's, and, and that's a period in a lot of people's lives where they just think, everybody thinks they're God. They look mm -hmm. in the mirror, and God looks back at them. Um, and, you know, if you're lucky, you get to enjoy that for a few years, and then at some point, the mirror shatters, <laughs> and God <laughs> says, <laughs> God says, uh-uh, uh, that's not going to happen anymore. Right. Um, so I don't have a, a favorite story. I mean, you know, there are times where you, you, the collective energy of the machine is just sort of like everybody gets to draft each other. You know, like when you're, you know, bicycle riders, when they go out riding, they draft each other. They break the wind for each other. And... When you're in a newspaper, you know, uh, I think we've been tagged uh, legacy journalism uh, by your publication or by Newshawk at one point. <laughs> oh yes, the Independent, because you know, we, we actually, pay, it's a paper, people pick up and read. We have an office where people come in. I mean, and, and one of the great difficulties and, and hardships of COVID is people don't come in as much. And, and really we have like two or three people here at any given time. So the whole sort of collective energy is lost. And while it's meetings are a drag and you know everybody you work with will get on your nerves and just shut up, um, that collective energy sustains you in such a huge way. And the loneliness of the long distance writer, man, it just gets, I mean, you do it, so you know. Yeah, yeah I think it would, it'll probably never happen, but I've always thought, what would it be like for you and I to be in the same newsroom? Because I'm always like one of these guys who, workaholic, yeah. you know, like get in early, leave late, all in, all the time. It'd be interesting. Well, you know, the way it works here is uh, everybody's together and everybody's apart. And, and it's sort of like, um, you know, this is a, this is a uh, bit of a caricature of a news meeting, but okay, what are you working on? Go long. Everybody go long. It's sort of... <laughs> Um, and we don't do that so much anymore, but I mean, we have Delaney Smith here and who you have worked a lot with. Um, and you know, Delaney Smith, if left to her own devices, would try to suck the oxygen out of the solar system. She wants to eat everything in sight and chase down everything in sight. She has learned to pace herself better. 
because that way leads to madness and uh, burnout. Um, I certainly um, am a bad victim of ADD, uh, and um, I am the dog forever chasing its tail and going after everything simultaneously. So much I have not done, um, but along the way you produce stuff, and uh, Tyler is much more focused, and you know he's really really like okay, I'm just going to do this and excluding all this stuff, but. The Independent, everybody kind of goes hard. And so you would just have been another, another wide receiver going long uh, if, if you were here. And it'd be, okay, who, who's got time? And what you find, as I've gotten older, I mean, uh, I don't have to be undercover. I'm so totally cool not being undercover. Um, and, you know, if Tyler Hayden is going to go chase after I don't know if you've been reading his stuff, but I mean, what he's been doing is he's been taking every uh, police shooting, and let's just go through it, or every case where the, the county or the city got sued for uh, police misconduct. Okay, obviously we're in the lives of time of Black Lives Matters. We're in the time, you know, it's not just race. Race is clearly a huge aspect to it, and it's, you know, race is the 8,000 pound gorilla under the carpet and will, that will never go away in America. But, you know, as we see, it's, you know, it's also just how policing is done. So, you know, you have Ron Eli's son, Hope Ranch resident. You don't get much whiter than Tarzan. Ron Eli is Tarzan. His son is shot 22 times, you know, <laughs> under circumstances that raise a lot more questions than have been answered. Let's just put it that way. And one of the officers involved in that has been involved with lots of other shootings. Um, He's, it appears to be the sort of guy who you want to, you want with you as you go into the uh, burning building. And he, in fact, got a uh, medal, medal of valor for doing just that. But maybe the same impulse uh, that makes somebody courageous doesn't help them in terms of when does the trigger get pulled. Um, anyway, Tyler, has, I think, has really done a fabulous job just sort of explicating these. And he's been telling, you know, I've heard from some police officers and uh, uh, it's not fair, whatever, it's sensational. He has gone out of his way to unsensationalize it. And, and there are times where you, you read these accounts and at the end of it, you're horrified by everything. And you, you want to hug everybody involved. You want to, everybody's horrible and everybody, it's, it's just so tragic. And to me, the fact that he can pull that off there's not a, a simple good guy, bad guy equation where you know somebody can shake their fist and. and be, but clearly, we have a problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and one of the problems that we see here all the time is uh, the predominance of um, shootings uh, and uh, violence when mentally ill people are involved. Yeah. And uh, obviously, Tarzan's son clearly had um, some mental health issues uh, that were allegedly quite pronounced. Um, and cops, they're not, you know, cops are asked, like, you know, I mean, we want you to keep us safe from the criminals and we want you to um, keep us safe from the mentally ill. But, I mean, there's so many times where, you know, somebody calls the cops because they're worried about their son or daughter being flip city. And what happens is, and they're worried that their kid's going to get hurt. And the cops show up and guess what? Their kid gets hurt, mm -hmm. gets shot. And... Uh, and nobody starts out wanting to do that. It just happens. So they have to figure out how to program that. That was a big tangent. 
characters. Yeah, you know, you you talk about the the other reporters, you know, Tyler's work on the investigating these police brutality allegations is like phenomenal. It's exactly what newspapers should be doing and uh, it's like a good like hold it up like this is why right. newspapers exist and those have been really well received and that's a great job by him and of course Delaney's you know really infused a whole another level to the to the independent and if you wrap every reporter in town and combine us into one uh, we'd be like half of her ambition and energy and that's not an overstatement right. if you ever get to know her um, I mean I know you do but just you know listeners you know that's like uh, definitely definitely true so over the years I have developed uh, sort of up and down relationships with sources uh, right and it's interesting to watch because you know there's this you know for six months a source absolutely hates my guts and then over time they 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 soften and then the relationship turns entirely the opposite dr. Dan Secord as you recall was one of those people you you covered him um, you know, it, when you cover politics and you do it the way that we do it, which is not just superficial, you actually want to dig and dive in, you make friends and you make enemies. Right. And uh, I've sort of, uh, as I've gotten older and more mature, you know, sometimes I look back at some of my earlier coverage and be like, I could see why E.F. Falcone hated my guts for that period. Um, I can see why she thought maybe the attention was a little bit... Uh, too personal or maybe not balanced uh, you know as journalists like we're not finished when we are 30 years old like we're still growing too yeah. we're still developing and, and and we cover you know today the way you may cover a story might be different than you did sort of 10 years ago but I always really like that I like the feeling of covering a story and then you kind of maybe ruffle the feathers of somebody and then they over time maybe come to respect you um or not. Do you have a favorite, not favorite, but do you have people over the years who, who stand out as the most uh, complex in terms of covering or the most memorable? I mean, I really loved covering Babatunde. Um, I covered him really well those two years he was on the council and a little bit before uh, I remember him, I think more favorably than maybe some people at City Hall remember him, but I just remember being enraptured every time he spoke. Like, his quotes were like, oh my god, I'm just going to type everything down because he's so eloquent. He may not have read the staff report, but he had something to say, you know, in, in the moment. And um, over time, you sort of develop a, a sort of a, it's almost a, a jousting with these elected officials. And you definitely know what I'm talking about. You know, Dan Secord hating my guts, hanging up the phone, but then over time coming to respect my work and, you know, emailing me while I'm in San Jose to ask me how my, you know, kid is at the time. And like, like, whoa, how do we go from, <laughs> from that to that? Can you talk a little bit about that over the time? I mean, do you have sort of certain people you really loved covering? I do. I can't think of anybody right off the top of my head. Uh, you know, you sort of become enamored of whoever it is in the moment because yeah. I think part of the job is you have to sort of, you know, fall in love is not the right word, but you have to become obsessed in in the moment of, by certain people. And, um, you know, I um, like difficult people. I like uncomfortable people. I like people who are, you know, uh, 
very you know passionate about what they're doing. Um, I think that's pretty obvious. Most people are. I mean, passion sort of. Oh, you care. Um, and I mean, I, I'll give you an example of somebody I just met that is sort of like, uh, goes against the grain of expectation, perhaps. Celeste Barber, and Celeste Barber, as everybody knows, uh, is running for the City College uh, Board of Directors, and she has been embraced by the um, sort of Fox News right wing, yeah. and she's become the Fox News Joan of Arc of Santa Barbara. And you know, and and she and there's a reason for that. She was at a board meeting <clears throat> where she showed up uh, to uh, carry the flag and, and recited the Pledge of Allegiance uh, to uh, as part of a campaign to restore the Pledge of Allegiance to um, board meetings. Um, and she got a lot of catcalls um, from some faculty members who. Uh, were particularly uninterested in that and thought that was reactionary and a stupid thing to do. Mm. Um, and it got blamed on uh, a bunch of uh, African American students who had shown up uh, worried about sort of you know Black Lives Matter issues. And and some videos were made that that made it appear that um, she had been sort of harangued by the black students when in fact they were completely uninterested in her issue. Uh, and that went viral on Fox News. And so we definitely, we didn't endorse her, um, but you know, the, she's- The students were there because on, somebody had said the N-word. And was being reinstated. And, and that's what they were there for. Celeste was there because the board had, had uh, over the summer said, we're not gonna say the Pledge of Allegiance at the beginning. Two separate things, right. but yeah, I think in it the video sort of, it's like they're barking back at Celeste, and it was misleading. Yeah, and so this that moment is still being played out right now in terms of the, the elections, and you know, so Celeste kind of emerges as um, sort of like this caricature, right wing caricature, and making matters more complicated and painful, she is the mother of city council member Eric Friedman, <laughs> a full disclosure who works with my son at Trader Joe's in Delvina Street. Now, I like Eric, and and I can imagine this is a small town, and so I get a call from Celeste saying, I understand you're writing a story, or you're, you're working, I'd like to meet with you face to face. And so she comes in, and we have a long talk. And Celeste is really a much more complicated person. Um, you know, she, um, you know, long-time Democrat, not anymore, uh, pro-labor, uh, taught uh, at City College, um, and, uh, you know, was marched in the streets for abortion rights, um, marched in the streets against George Bush when George Bush unilaterally uh, declared war uh, on Saddam Hussein because of non-existent weapons of mass destruction, took, marched against Congress for giving George Bush a blank check to wage that war. Um, uh, and in, in the 90s, or early 90s, when Joe Biden was passing uh, legislation that helped uh, incarcerate tens of thousands of uh, you know, young black men, um, she was creating uh, something in the city of Lompoc called Holly House, in which uh, you have um, 
it is a halfway house for uh, mostly African-American women uh, who have children who have drug addictions, who otherwise would be in jail uh, or facing jail because uh, their drug addiction was imperiling their children's health. So how do we get? How do we get from that, you know, walking the walk and talking the talk to right-wing Joan of Arc? Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't really done that story yet, but that is um, the complexity of um, what happens or what you encounter when you when you actually talk to people. You know, what I have found with uh, that whole issue is once you get in a room with somebody, like 99% of the time, when you have those preconceived notions that you walk out of the room feeling differently, that you end up liking the person or at least having respect or thinking, why did I even hold that much sort of animosity for somebody that I never even met or I didn't even understand their perspective? So I think it's you know interesting that you had that experience with, with Celeste. And I, that's the great thing about journalism, too, is you get to educate people and inform. Because think about how many people in the community have that perspective, and if you ever do right. a story on that, mm-hmm. you're at, that's where you're actually being useful and influential and informative. And I think that's that's the case a lot of times with you know conservatives. In, in my experience, is that you know we're liberal Santa Barbara, and uh, we sort of make monsters out of certain uh, people or perspectives. And obviously, uh, there's. Things are always very contentious politically with our president. And if somebody is perceived to be on that side, then we want to go to war. But I've always found that as a journalist, once you get to actually know people on the ground and on on, on sort of a, an equal playing field, there's a lot to yeah. relate to. Like the story you're saying about Celeste and the work she did. Or, I don't know if a lot of people know about that. Or I'll give you an example. I mean, are, are we on? Yeah. Um, you remember Michael Self? Uh, city council member. You know, conservative, right-wing, property rights. Um, I don't know if she's supporting Trump or not. Um, She was shooting fish in a barrel because she would always say these sort of overblown, outspoken, goofy things in city council meetings. And so, you know, it was just, when do you stop quoting her? Um, And she was such a good sport about me picking on her <laughs> and, um, and having fun at her expense in the poodle. But uh, as you, you know, I went through a situation with tongue cancer uh, many years ago. And, um, you know, it was a lot, it was actually about the time that, that documentary about um, Wendy McCall was being made. And one of the reasons I was so on in that interview as I was going in for surgery on my tongue uh, shortly after that interview, and I knew it, and I had no idea what I was going to talk like. Um, And so I wanted to have a record of what I sounded like for my children. Hmm. So they could go, okay, this is what my father used to sound like before they gave him the slice and dice treatment. Anyway, I can talk okay, there's a slight slur, but, Somewhere when, you know, I'm going through chemo and radiation and all this stuff, I get a call from Michael Self. And Michael Self was not this, you know, the sort of person who, you know, called up and said, hey, Nick, how you doing? And she said, hey, you know what? 
I know this is going to sound a little woo-woo to you, but I go see this chiropractor down in L.A., and he's really a healer. And I know you're going through some stuff. And if you're going to come down, we could drive together. And I just like, oh, I mean, it was, um, it was such an act of kindness. Yeah. Um, undeserved uh, on my part. And, you know, you just, uh, by somebody who, who truly, I had sport at her expense. Um, but that goes to, you know, you know, the humanity there. That, you know, we, it's, we all, I mean, it's, it's really clear, the humanity, but the reality is um, we always want to have, you know, the, the sort of tribal demarcations. What side are you on? You know, what team do you play for? And, you know, I mean, with people like Dan Secord, again, you know, it's like, he was too ornery for the Republicans and too ornery for the Democrats, and he's too ornery for himself. Um, but, you know, his heart was in the right place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he definitely stepped on toes and ruffled feathers, but uh, he did it for the right reasons, or at least what he thought the right reasons were. And, you know, you, you can't, as a reporter, um, always impose your good guy, bad guy hats on people and make them wear them. Yeah. Because people wear their own hats, and I think, I don't know how you are, we, I, I am getting older, and having done this a while, you know, you see younger reporters come in, and I think it's just inevitable and natural that young reporters want to kick somebody's ass. Mm -hmm. and, and I think at this time in history, especially, <clears throat> if you are under a certain age, and you don't want to kick somebody's ass, there's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that, when you send somebody like that out to cover an event, they're so much more interested in kicking somebody's ass mm -hmm. uh, than in like finding the humanity. <laughs> uh, and um, so, with interns and young writers now, it's um, you. You really have to work harder as an editor to try to like. Okay, you don't have to agree with them. But you don't have to, they're not the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the moral judgment that, I think part of it is if you live long enough, you realize who the hell are you to have moral judgment over anybody, because we all have proven enough times to ourselves that given the right opportunities, we're gonna, do the, we're gonna be as stupid as anybody. Uh, so we're not really in a position to be so morally judgmental. Um, yeah, I think what comes with age is uh, understanding the complexities of people and the layers and that nobody is all one thing or another. And that's the fun part, too, is learning to appreciate that range. And we have a responsibility as journalists to tell the truth, but to also tell the truth in context. And if you just sort of plop in and you don't like Celeste Barber, to use that example, because you think she's a right-wing conservative, well, there's actually, she's lived a long life, and do you even know anything about right. her besides that moment? And that's that's a, that's a sort of the info we need to pass on, right. you know, to, as, you know, as we get, we get older. I've definitely done that. I've been, like, you know, I want to sit down with Gary Gleason and be like, Sorry, hey. dudes! <laughs> You know, or, or just like explain my perspective, which I would have done at the time if he ever actually 
return to call right. of mine. But you know, you sort of get a little bit wiser with with age. You know, you mentioned your battle with tongue cancer. So if you don't mind, I'd like to maybe just ask you a little bit about that. You um, you know, when you watch that documentary, what stands out, you know, and I didn't watch it for a few years, and I watched it like two years ago, and I'm like, damn. You know, that's Nick Welsh. Like, you know, it was it was for me uh, a reminder, you know, and because because it was just so different in terms of, um, uh, you know, the person that we kind of know in recent years. And I was just sort of thinking, like, how did you uh, how did you get through that? Did that change you at all as a writer or did you just. Uh, uh, you yeah, know? it ruined me um, as a writer. Um, I, I think uh, <clears throat> I became uh so highly susceptible to the kindness of uh, strangers uh, that it really made it hard for me um, to go out and kick ass in the same way I had before. Um, I mean, I will say, and that's sort of a broad thing, I would say writing and and being able to do my job uh, was necessary for me to heal. And... um, you know, having that to do uh, was really, you know, um, essential. Um, you know, I had three or four surgeries on my tongue. I had chemotherapy, I had radiation. It was a long uh, convalescence. And one of the things that you realize if you go through that is your brain gets zapped by the chemotherapy. They call it chemofog. And so my ability to do the job to handle anything complex was just like intellectually not able. Um, and so, I mean, I had to like limit myself to stories that you could walk into a room, do a one source story. I talked to so-and-so, he said the cow is blue. The cow is blue, said so-and-so, end of story. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember um, when I finally could like break out of that. And it was when the whole shit show between Das and Pedro Nava was exploding over the PXP uh, oil development and it was, you know I'm not going to bore uh, anybody listen with the details the photoshops uh, champagne glass yeah. All that, yeah I mean and, and it, it, let's just say the movable parts associated with that story were a Rubik's Cube and it was really exhausting and it was it was a turning point in politics certainly for Das Williams um, he, I mean, that's when he decided he was going to go uh, for the assembly, and that's when Salud Carbajal, who at that point really didn't have much love for Das, they were very competitive and, and uh, distrustful and wary of each other, um, who uh, decided he was going to throw all of his chips behind Das because he hated Pedro so much. Uh, so, in terms of you know, the politics of how, it, you know, Santa Barbara has transpired, it was a momentous turning point issue, and people can still argue what was the right way to go or the wrong way to go, and they do and will. Um, but I remember going into some coastal commission, not a coastal commission, state lands commission meeting and covering it, and just, like, being able to handle the Rubik's Cube aspect of the story and thinking, oh, thank you, I'm back, I can do this. Uh, but yeah, that definitely um, took some wind out of the sail. This podcast is sponsored by Radius Commercial Real Estate. 
For over 40 years, Steve Golis at Radius Commercial Real Estate has served the South Coast and Tri-County markets as the undisputed leader in multifamily investment sales, amassing more than $1 billion and 13,000 units sold over the last decade alone. With acumen for market analysis and connecting investors with the right properties, Steve is the go-to among local investors looking to capitalize in this unique real estate category. For unrivaled results in the sale or purchase of your residential income assets, contact Steve Golis at Radius Commercial Real Estate at www.radiusgroup.com or 805-965-5500. So you probably got a lot of attention and love and sort of people reaching out to you. So when you talk about uh, killing your writing, did you, after that, have difficulty maybe going after somebody? Yeah, I could ever make fun of myself again in a million years. I was much more sensitive to, you know, if somebody was essentially a kind person, and maybe they were stupid, or maybe they were misguided, or maybe they were, you know, venal. I was much more aware of the kindness. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, certain things that I, you know, uh, certain flavors of who they were, you know, that would affect me more. And um, it's hard to be, uh, you know, to call somebody, it's not being mean. I mean, part of the job of a reporter is, well, you said this, but you did that. Um, how do you reconcile that? Or, you know, it's not always gotcha. It's just, but you know, you said something that was really stupid um, or hurtful <laughs> or whatever, or yeah. you didn't conduct yourself well in that meeting. Um, and so it made it hard for me to kind of get back into that. Um, I think I was, uh, you know, much more tuned in to um, pain people were feeling. It, it definitely changed. Um, but again, I don't know. I have to go back and reread it. Mm-hmm. You know, what was I like before? What was I like after? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely know that there have been some like proofs I've written since uh, about the city council, um, where I just got really fed up, yeah. and I would just tee off on this sort of squabbling for squabbling's sake, I guess is what you would call it, and um, inability to just like, do your job well. And um, where, you know, I would go to events and, you know, you know, people from City Hall would be very upset with what I had written. Um, you know. Well, you know, you get that. Um, I don't know if you get that, but I get that. You know, like with sources, they're sort of like, oh, Nick did that, so I'm going to give the story to you, Josh. Right. Or, you know, um, oh, you know, Nick did this. Sorry, I had to talk to him first. It's nothing personal, but... Next time, you know, I'll go to, you know, so there's that sort of, you know, game that goes on right. with your sources and sort of, it's just, it's a very small world of uh, that we live in, but it's fascinating. Yeah, people are always working, working it. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, okay, I mean, I would do it if I was them. All right. You know, there are some very astute readers out there in the world of politics and they know your tendencies, they know my tendencies, okay, it's an inside pitch to the counts three and two, what's it likely to do? <laughs> and um, and they, okay, what kind of a story is Nick going to do? What kind of a story is Josh going to do? Mm-hmm. Or, or I'm calling Nick and he's not doing anything. Well, I know that son of a bitch, I'll call Josh. Mm-hmm. Fuck Nick. Um, 
<laughs> and, um, and and you feel you. I mean, we get works all the time. Like uh, I won't say who, but you know, um, you know, during the um, uh, Doss uh, Williams race against Laura Capps, and there was that whole issue of the uh, third party that uh, was um, you know committee that was basically canvas money weighing in on behalf of Doss. And I remember getting these phone calls from people who were affiliated with it. They wanted to give me the story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and because they thought Jerry was working on it. And Jerry mm-hmm. was working on it. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't have time to deal with that right now. Mm-hmm. Why don't you go talk to Jerry? Um, but it was clearly they figured, you know, they were going to give me some sort of, you know, soft soap version because, you know, Jerry was much, you know, anyway, yeah. they, they clearly had, had done their scouting homework and were playing it accordingly. Yeah. Um, years ago, you know, I, I got a call from somebody who said, Nick is working on this story about Target and Goleta, and they're going to announce this, like, deal that they have with the Bermants, and, and I want you to have first because really mad at Nick, you know? And it's like, you know, and, and when you're the daily, you can do it first, you know, kind of thing. Take that, it. That stuff happens, you know? Right. And then you're like, what the heck is this? Like that, you know? And then you're like, I know how that happened, you know? And then that's happened to me too with you. Like I've had sources who are like so mad at me and then they go to you yeah. and you're just like, well, that's that's the game. But that's why put, I think we all need to be like supportive of each other too because it's like at the end of the day, Everybody reads everything, I think. Yeah. You know, they, the order varies, but, you know, if I got it today, you got it tomorrow, or you got it today and I got it next week, they're going to read it all, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the cheap thrill of having it first is great. It's still a cheap thrill. Um, I don't know how many people care anymore, but, though. But we are, I don't think it's such a big deal. I mean, everything is first now. We're so inundated. Yeah. And... So it's like, what does it mean? Or why do I care? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that helps, I think. And that's what we try to do here is a little bit. Why do I care? What does it mean? And what happened? And, um, but again, you know, there are certain issues like Canvas um, where I don't, I, I I don't know which side of the bed I want, must have gone to sleep on, but um, I've been accused by both sides of being uh, in bed with the other person. Yeah. Um, just like, uh, and it gets really uh, tiresome after a while because with the canvas issue, everybody feels everything so intensely. Um, there's no middle ground. There's all these conspiracy theories right. that happen too with people's per- perceptions of how the media works. Right. And they think, oh, you're never going to write about that or you're only going to write about that when the truth is that most of the time we're just busy and then we only get to some certain things right. and there's no reason behind why we don't or do something. It's, it's just, there's only so much time in the day <laughs> to get to these things. So but you, you know, you raise a really interesting issue there where like sort of what's the, what's your default pattern? And because really most of us are not operating on any grand plan and like the great media conspiracy theories. Yes. David Rockefeller called up and said, I want this story about the city council on the front page. And, you know, all that sort of stuff like that is, is clearly the people, like, you know, have they ever worked in a newsroom? Have they ever been in a newsroom? But you do have to look at, like, who are the people 
you just unconsciously call up as sources. And at what point is your unconscious comfort level um, dictating the news? And you know, we had a implicit bias training here, and there was good things about it, and some some of it was a little preachy, but some of it was really valuable, particularly when they got into the, like looking at, all right, here are your stories. Here are your stories where people of color appear. Here are your stories of people, oh, guess what? X percent of them are about crime. Oh, X percent of the photos are booking photos. Um, you know, and, and so when, when you, you break out your sort of unconscious default tendencies, um, it, it's, it's, it's useful to have somebody bring that to your attention because uh, maybe you should be more intentional um, how I do things. And I, I, I remember, I think I know who did it, um, Marty Blum was mayor. And somebody uh, who was uh, close to Marty did a content analysis of all the articles I'd written in a certain period of time <laughs> and um, how many times I quoted Marty, which was not much. Um, and so they, they just broke it down statistically. And they were right. Now, there was an explanation. Marty had a way of speaking where she would start a sentence in Maryland and end up in Virginia and then get to Ohio. Um, and then she would ask you a question in the middle of that. Yeah. So, so she was hard to quote. Um, but um, I could have done better. Um, and, you know, I paid attention to her. You know, so that was useful. And just the other thing, I mean, one of the things that's cool about our job working in Santa Barbara as reporters and writers, is that you have readers, and people really care. And sometimes you wish they wouldn't, sometimes you wish they just shut up, but really it's really good that they care, because they keep you honest, and they keep you informed, and they it's also gratifying. But, um, you know, one of the great readers and curmudgeons out there is Ernie Solomon. And Ernie Solomon writes all of us letters, and 90% of which should never see the light of day because they're just so, like, Ernie, don't say that and certainly don't write it. Um, vitriolic. Vitriolic. Like, oh my God. <laughs> Ernie, you're scaring me. Um, but over the years, you know, he's called me to task on a number of things. And, um, yeah, oh, okay. Maybe you're right about that. And so, I mean, um, I mean, one of the things he did is he goes, Ryan, what's with your poodle anyway? I can't even understand what you're trying to say. <laughs> I can't even understand what you're trying to say. Mm -hmm. I said, fuck, okay, Ernie Solomon's not a stupid guy. If he can't understand, maybe I'm not being clear enough. Yeah. So I went back and I said, and, 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 so it used to be, again, going full circle, um, my sentence structure was like a, was like a choo-choo train. I mean, it had, it had like a caboose, it had a coal car. I mean, I, I would have a colon, a semicolon, a parentheses, dashes. I mean, uh, I, the most co convoluted sentence structures you can imagine. And um, I thought, okay, I need to get clear. Not simple, but clear. Mm -hmm. And so my writing has gotten, or my sentences have gotten shorter. Uh, okay, you learn, right. you know? So you mentioned Ernie Salomon, who's, uh, as you mentioned, you know, he's super knowledgeable and uh, is one of these uh, sort of poke you in the ribs constantly 
with his emails, and we sort of get familiar with those types of characters as reporters because the government doesn't listen to them, and so then uh, they come to us, right? So along those lines, let's talk about, like, the most prominent poke you in the ribs, punch you in the mouth, gadfly activist in Santa Barbara right now. Anna Marie Gott. <laughs> uh, what is, what's your take on her? I don't know if I am comfortable uh, saying what my take on her is. I think Anna Marie Gott is um, phenomenally smart. Um, I have no idea what motivates her. Yeah. You brought up Baba Tunde a long time uh, earlier. Oh, yeah, Baba Tunde. And Baba Tunde is Jermaine. Baba Tunde asked a really great question. We were talking about an activist in town. He was an ally of, of Baba Tunde's. Um, and, but Baba Tunde didn't trust him. And nobody did. Uh, he was really talented, he was really smart. But Baba Tunde was asking, he goes, I know what he hates. I don't know what he loves. Oh. And I think with uh, Amory God, you know what she hates. You don't know what she loves. Um, you know she hates the council. She knows she she hates city hall. There are things more specific to it than that: the duplicity, the lack of accountability, all this stuff. But it, it you watch her in action, and she un unearths information that that is being covered up, or that is not transparent. So she she is a scouring pad. She's a brillo pad. <laughs> and, you know, she does you know, serve a purpose. So, for example, um, you know, she is correct. Um, a couple of years ago, there was, what, 45 tiny homes were being prom prom uh, proposed for a parking lot at Castillo and Carrillo yeah. Streets. And the neighbors were given uh, two days' notice or something at, uh, about this meeting. And, and the person who gave them the notice as Anne-Marie Cott somehow found out this was happening and went around and put notices on everybody's door in the immediate neighborhood. You know, you know all of that was really um, good for her. And, um, and, and the whole thing blew up because of how, how the, the public noticing had been totally bungled. Um, there were extenuating circumstances that were less nefarious um, than Anne-Marie was suggesting in the moment. But if you lived in the neighborhood and, oh my God, you're going to have a homeless village, uh, even if the housing authority is running it, and a parking lot that you you're, you use, um, that was a big change. And um, But watching her in action in front of the city council, it was all about her. And I'm the one. It wasn't for me. And it was just too much about her and how she exposed and how how much malfeasance there was. And so um, I, I think that Emory is a, a force of nature and, um, and does get information, but the problem is, is that she's a fire hose and a fire alarm at the same time, and so people can't hear what she has, and it's all delivered in the same torrential blast. And so they, it's hard as a 
recipient of her information to put balance to it, mm-hmm. and she gives you so much at any time you're you're, you're drenched, sopping wet. Now, what's the difference between Anne-Marie God and Bruce Rittenhouse? Um, that's a really good question. Um, Bruce Rittenhouse, for he was such a. I went to his home one time, hmm. and I interviewed him. And what you saw, stray cats would come in, <laughs> and he would feed them. And he had a five-year supply of giant Cokes. So you have... Like the two-liter bottles? It's a big bottle. Yeah. And I just thought, that really sums up Bruce. Here's this guy who is a bunch of Coke bottles just getting ready to explode over anything, <laughs> who has a fundamental, kind heart towards lost souls and stray cats. And I knew what Bruce loved. That would be the difference. Bruce was a gay man, uh, though he would never admit that. I mean, I didn't know that till he passed away. Right. I mean, and I talked to his longtime partner. Right. But he kept, I mean, that was really quiet when right. he was active. And he was an outsider. And when, he, when again, Bruce is, when Bruce first showed up on the stage of Santa Barbara politics, it was in what I would have considered a right-wing reactionary posture. He was a law and order um, uh, respondent against all the homeless activism that was happening, and we're gonna curb the homeless, and this and that, and, and then before, you know, but he was, he was such a mixed bag, and then he became a, um, so he was a civil libertarian, and um, and he would, and he definitely, you know, and he would look after uh, young kids who were maybe in gangs or in, or in, or in the uh, possibility of being in gangs. I remember showing up in the courtrooms, and you would see, you know, it'd be for some trial, and Bruce would be sitting there with some teenage kid, and um, and he was walking him through the court system, and he was looking out for him. These were lost souls, and Bruce was going to be, he was their self-appointed guardian angel. And that got him in all kinds of fights. Yeah. Um, and, and again, you know, he loved to beat up on Hal Conklin. Anytime he could say something mean or nasty about Hal Conklin, whether Hal had it coming or not, Bruce was going to say it. Bruce liked to take, you know, he, what was his name? Tom Roberts. Oh, yeah. oh my God. He hated Tom Roberts. Um, and, you know, Bruce loved to feud with people, and but there was a, a, a fundamental joyfulness about Bruce a, that you couldn't help but like. He took such delight in ripping a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even if that, it was like his megalomania got a little in the way. Um, there's no doubt. He was always happy. You remember when he would shake your hand yeah. and he just was a big grin? Yeah. And even though he had enemies, he also had people that he could point to that say they were doing a good job. So you, you always felt like he had one foot in sanity. Like, right. oh, well, he makes sense there. Right. You know? So the flip side, I mean, so I, I definitely got to really enjoy Bruce, and, and um, I liked him a lot. Um, and I definitely my perception shifted. But it is also true that... Um, uh, you know, there had been a, I mean, I live on the west side, Bruce was on the west side, and there was a west side neighborhood group that met, and Bruce started showing, and they just stopped meeting because they just couldn't deal with him. It was just right. like, a, 
and, and he so ruined it, yeah. he he definitely you know, was a skunk at that garden party, um, and uh, you know ultimately it's reemerged in some fashion. But um, Bruce definitely did not help that way. He he's a lone ranger type who needs to walk alone. Um, and what made Bruce really interesting, I think, cosmically and civically here, it was his close relationship with Mayor uh, Harriet Miller. Another, you know, gay woman living in the closet. Nobody was ever going to say it. Um, and, you know, just, you know, one of the most powerful mayors we've ever had. And um, you didn't mess with Harriet. And he was sort of her court jester. Um, and, you know, he he did driving Miss Daisy for, for Harriet. So when Harriet needed a ride, Bruce would, and Bruce would drive her. And if... Uh, she was leaving town and needed her plants watered, Bruce would water them. Um, And so Bruce got away with all kinds of things under Harriet's protective wing Uh that he probably wouldn't have. So for example, at the gas station at Mitchell Terrena and San Andreas, there was, the colors bars were painted on some public property that were the colors of the American flag and the Mexican flag. And it was a really sort of simple, profound, subtle statement of the unity of the two people. Bruce was responsible for it. Mm. Um, and I, other city council members uh, would say, you know, they, they had taken a, uh, this was done, art in a public place without proper permits, all this stuff, and, and they had tried to meddle with it, and Harriet would intervene and stop them um, and on Bruce's behalf. Um, so, he definitely, you know, that relationships like that exist in Santa Barbara and change things in subtle ways or not subtle ways is one of the really cool things about being a reporter here in town. Whereas, you know, you think, I don't, I'm sure that in L.A. those sort of idiosyncratic relationships happen. They happen everywhere, but they're just not as obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's kind of wrap up here, Nick. Uh, What's next for you? You know, you've been doing this almost um, 40 years. You don't want me to mention that. Uh, and you're still on fire. I mean, every week people look forward to reading you. And I know um, you're on my mind as to what is Nick covering at City Hall. Um, what's, you know, do you have sort of uh, goals and what you want to do, uh, you know, the, the, this part of your What group? do I want to do when I grow up? <laughs> um, that's a really good question. Uh, I have uh, allowed myself to get too distracted by the here and now uh, to focus on a lot of those long-term projects and obviously um, the clock is ticking. Um, I am working on a a book that I'm behind on about Richard Birdie here in town. Um, And I have a a, a number of books, uh, sort of local history books that I think would be really fun. I don't know if they'd be, you know, of what broad audience I would love to write a really trashy, you know, thriller. Um, uh, you know, so those are sort of, you know, but there are days, you know, I mean, this has been a hard year, man. This is 2020, has been ruthless. And uh, it's taken the wind out of everybody's sails and everybody's exhausted. And it's hard to focus on anything. It's hard, I mean, you wake up in the morning and you go, okay, I'm having a hard time reading the funny pages. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and it's just been brutal. I mean, you know, between 
you know, the Thomas fire, the mudslide, the conception, you know, there's a constant state of hyper alertness about fires, you know, and now you have, you know, coronavirus, and of course, you know, Black Lives Matter is, you know, is a painful um, learning moment that we're all going to have a lot of painful learning to do, but necessary. Um, so there's just no shortage of stuff. And, you know, again, you know, I use the metaphor of Brillo pad, but I kind of feel like I've been scraped by a Brillo pad. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what I'd like to do is write some simple non-conflict, non-push come to shove, stupid stories about, oh, look at Pug. He's a street musician who plays accordion, you know, kick drum and harmonica. And I don't know how he does it. He's actually really good. Mm -hmm. And um, that would be fun. Um, doing, you know, some stupid story like that where if it's good or it's bad, it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, uh, you know, Western civilization doesn't hang in the balance. <laughs> well, congratulations again on your best uh, Well, thank award. you very much. Very well deserved. And uh, I just, reporter to reporter, really appreciate your, your journalism. And even though, you know, many, many times over the years you've scooped me, um, I always really appreciate the, the level of skill behind your, your reporting and your sourcing and your writing and uh, it's hard to complain when you get beat by somebody as talented as you and uh, when I do scoop you I really enjoy that too so um, well, I, I, enjoy, <laughs> I, I enjoy that too like, like, I'm a, oh yeah we're not competing it's like when I go for a bike ride uh -huh. you, know, you know that's what I do for you know I go for bike riding and I come back and tell my wife oh yeah there's some guy up there, you know I, you know, you're, you're never ra racing with anybody on the road. You all just happen to be, but I do enjoy like picking them off um, <laughs> up, uphill because I can't pick anybody off on a flat. But uphill, I'm I'm pretty good. So I, I see you and oh, son of a bitch. I'm gonna have to come back on that one. I'll start. Oh, he's he's covering the ordinance committee, is he? <laughs> yeah. No. Um, anyway. Uh, Appreciate the conversation, Nick. Great job. Look forward to seeing uh, your work going forward and your, your book and your other projects. Uh, you can find more podcasts like this at SantaBarbaraTalks.com. And thanks to Kiva Cowork for supporting these podcasts.